0: You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. We exist to see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied, all to the glory of God. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com. All right, you guys can have a seat. Uh, as they do, just want to welcome those joining us online today. Uh, if you're uh, joining us online, just want to indicate on whatever platform you're watching on. That would be great. Love to have you here. Um, we uh, uh, are continuing our study of uh, Genesis, and we're gonna we're gonna cover a big chunk today. Uh, you're gonna hear a bunch of names not pronounced correctly, probably. Uh, but uh, uh, there's a lot here. It's another one of those passages for me at the beginning of the week. It's like, wow, like, okay, what do we, what do we say about these things? But uh, by the time I get here this morning, it's like, man, there's a lot to be said. So uh, we're going to try to get through it all. Uh, but we're going to be looking at Genesis 10. But for those who maybe are visiting, I want to just remind us of how we've got here uh, this morning. We've had the flood in Genesis 6 to 9. Uh, In that section, we've seen that there's this decreation that happens, and then a recreation. Recreation of the earth. All seven days are mentioned in one way or the other in the recreation. The the things that we talked about last week, we've seen that um, God once again gave man dominion over the earth. Uh, The animals would now fear uh, that mankind, uh, uh, food is provided. This time, animals are also part of it. There was one prohibition for food in the uh, original creation. Now there's one prohibition. You should not eat uh, the blood. And, and there's this continual process that's happening. Uh, the original creation account, we've we seen that there was uh, fruit uh, involved in sin and then shame and nakedness. And then there was a covering. Uh, We've seen this again last week. So it should not surprise us as we get into chapters 9 and 10, or sorry, 10 and 11, we're going to continue to see this pattern. The the same things that we've seen last time are the same things we're going to see again. And I think uh, one of the reasons God shows us this is to try to convince us as humanity, you are not good people. You, 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 every time... You choose sin, right? And, and, and I know that's a super popular message uh, to say that, but, but that is the reality. And, and so we're seeing the same pattern. Last time, we were introduced to the line of Cain and then the line of uh, Seth. Line of Seth, that's where the hope is going to come. Line of Cain, it's not going to go so well. And then we see it kind of broaden out. So then what happened as the generations went on? That's what we're going to see this week. What happens now? We've been introduced to the line of Shem. That's where the hope is going to come through. The line of Canaan, that's, where, uh, that's the group that's being cursed. And, and now what's going to happen as a result of it? And basically what we see is a repeat all over again. The same kind of arrogance of man last time God stepped in and flooded the earth. That's what happened last time. But if you were with us last week, you're like, he promised he wouldn't do that again. Man hasn't changed. They're still sinful. They're still walking in rebellion. What will God do this time in order to see his promise that he made in Genesis 3.15 fulfilled? What will he do this time? And so that's what we're going to be looking at. But as I was thinking about this, anybody ever read um, uh, City of God by St. Augustine? Uh, two of you. Okay, great. Uh, everybody's really into reading. Um, it's a fascinating uh, fascinating book, but if I could just sum it up, is this. Um, he uses an illustration of two cities in trying to explain the distinction between the church and the world. Two loves have formed two cities, he claimed. The love of self has formed the earthly city. The love of God has formed the earthly one. The earthly city is characterized by pride and self-aggrandizement, while those in the heavenly city honor God in all things, trusting only him for all wisdom and giving glory to only him. And, And I think that's a great illustration for what we see still on the earth today. Everybody is living for the city of man. As we think about this city that we're going to be looking at this morning, the city of Babel, the city of man, living for ourselves, living for what we think is best, not wanting to have anything to do with God, that really sums up our world today. And so, as we get into it this morning, I want you to begin to think, do I, based on Augustine's city of man versus city of God, which one best describes me? Am I fully saying, God, every day, I want your will to be done. I want your kingdom to come. Lord, it's not about me. It's about you. If nobody ever knows me, I don't care. That's not, that's not for me. I, I want you to be glorified. You have the same heart that John the Baptist had, like Lord, you increase, me decrease. Uh, That's is that your heart this morning? Because what we see is our default is me increase, me get what I want, my kingdom come, my will be done. And so I want us just to be fully aware that's our default, but by God's grace, it can be different. And so I want us to be be examining our hearts this morning as we get into this. Let me pray for us, and then we'll get into the text. God, we we recognize, um, Lord, even as we've been studying these chapters in Genesis. God, we are sinful people. Lord, that's just this is what we are. That's what we do. We we take your good commands, we take your love and your grace, and then we stomp all over it. We want what we want in our pride. We think we know better in our pride. We, we think that, that somehow we're on even terms with you in some way. But, God, none of that's true. God, we, we are small and you are great. And we're going to be reminded of that again this morning as we study this text. But, God, as we, as we remember that, we also remember the greatness of your love, of your grace. There there are many people who are sinners here who have been saved because of your grace, because of your mercy, because of your love. God, I pray that we would be people, as Augustine put it, who are living for the city of God. That, That our hope is not in the things of this world, but is in Christ and in the things to come. God, help us to examine our hearts this morning. Lord, help us to be real about where we really are right now, God. If if we're living a divided heart with a divided heart, God, show us that. And Lord, would you lead us? Would you help us to be a people who are bring who bring glory and honor to you? It's your name. We pray, Amen. All right, everybody needs a Bible. If you don't have one? Go ahead and slip up your hand. You're definitely going to want a Bible this morning. As you're looking down, and you're going to look down, you're like, uh, what what words is he using? I don't even necessarily see that here, but okay, we're going to get through this together. Okay, but chapter 10, lots of nations are mentioned, lots of words that are difficult to pronounce, Uh, and then we're going to get into chapter 11, verse 9. So chapter 10, which is known as the table of nations, and then uh, as I mentioned, we're going to read chapter 11 uh, up to verse 9. Let me begin. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Ripheth and Tog- uh, Tog- 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 Togarmah. Togarmah. The sons of Javan, Elish- Elisha. Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodonim. From these, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans in their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Rama, and Sabtekta. The sons of Rama, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh both ear, Kala, and reason between Nineveh and Kala—that is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Anam, Anamim, Lahabim, Naphtal, Naphtahim, Pathrosim, Casluhim, Kath, Kath, from whom the Philistines came and him. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth. And the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Arkites, the Sinites, the Araites, the Samarites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites were uh, dispersed. And the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as uh, Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zobehim, as far as Lasha, these are the sons of Ham, by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. Are you still with me? Okay. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber. The elder brother was Japheth. Children, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arkpashad, Arch, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hull, Gether, and Mash. Archbashad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg. For in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almadad, Sheliph, (laughs) Hazamaveth, Jirah, Hadaram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abamil, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The the territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Sefer to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, in their nations, and from these nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood." And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from them. from From there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So this morning we're getting an accurate anthropology. Where did all the nations come from? Where did all these peoples come from? This chapter 10 tells us that. And then as we see in chapter 10 and chapter 11, we see the ambition of man. Where, they, where, they, where their thrust is if they are left to themselves. And so as we see the ambition of man, first we see the ambition of man requires human advancement. We see this in chapter 10. We're not going to go through all these names again, uh, breaking them down. We'd be here all day if that was the case. But I want us to just take some, some broad perspective on chapter 10. If you were to take the time to go through your ancestry, I don't think Ancestry.com, hope, does it go to Shem, Ham, and Japheth yet? Okay. Um, but, but if it did, if it was accurate, it would get back to Shem, Ham, and Japheth. There is no nation on the world that can say, yeah, actually, we don't have our roots in your God. Like, your God is, is a North American God. It's a European God. Like, like you know, we, we come from a different part of the world. No, we all come from the same family. Sham, Ham, and Japheth, every single one of us. And in a world that focuses on how we're different, it's important to remember that there truly is one race, the human race. And from that, every tribe and nation has come about. This, as I said, is the table of nations. Uh, Walkie puts it like this, The table represents God's broad concern for all peoples, not just the Israelites, which is understood by the omission of Israel from this table. The narrator presents a symbolic 70 nations based on ethnic, geographic, linguistic, and political factors. Seventy are mentioned. It's really fascinating as you, as you go through this. Uh, the, the 70 nations, it's, it's this idea of completeness. The multiples of seven and ten indicate completeness. And they are used in Moses' retelling of the nations. All nations are under the eye of God completely. Japheth's family is explained that they have 14, okay, two sets of seven, Seth has 26 descendants. Uh, The phrase, sons of, uh, sorry, um, Ham has uh, 30 descendants. And then the phrase, the sons of, is mentioned 14 times. Matthew says this again, the intentional total of 70 nations, a multiple of 7 and 10, symbolizes the whole world of nations. Now, what's really interesting is that um, when Jacob and his family come into Egypt, does anybody remember how many was in their family as they come into the land of Egypt? There was 70. And then there's this verse in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse eight. It says, "When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God." Is like, we're, we're just being told, listen, God is in control over every single detail. He's over it all. Uh, the elders who were in the wilderness over, uh, over the, the people of God, 70 elders. And then uh, one of the commentators noted in Luke chapter 10, when God, uh, sorry, when Jesus is sending out the disciples, he sends out 70 there's this idea that he's sending them out. He is the God over this world, and he's, he's going to send them to every tribe, na- nation, and language. And then Acts 1.8, of course, tells us that, right? Go to Judea, Samaria, Jerusalem, and uh, unto the outer parts of the earth. God is the God of all nations. There's this pattern as we, we're going to go through it, or sorry, as you, as you read through it, there's first Japheth is mentioned Japheth is mentioned first because to Israel he's nearly not that important and that's kind of the pattern the way it works in the bible you kind of mention the least important first and then you kind of go from there so Japheth is mentioned first and at the end of his account then Ham and then Seth or sorry Shem you see this according to their clans their languages their lands and their Nations. You may have noticed when we we're reading through that chapter 11, verse 1, says that they had one language. So, obviously, what? Chapter 10 and 11 aren't in order, right? Chapter 10. And 11 intersect at some point, and really nobody knows exactly. I'm going to tell you my best guess as to when these things happen. But chapter 10 is a summation for Israel. As they look back, how did everybody get to be where they're at? How did did all these clans, languages, lands, and nations come about? And we're going to see that. They all go together, chapter 11, verses 1 through 9 as well. Diversity happens as a result of the curse. The, 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 all these languages and, and, and tribes and nations happened because mankind failed to do what they were commanded to do. And we're going to look at that for more in just a moment. I, I'm going to ask Matthew if you can just throw up that map now. But there's a map, and, and if you're kind of like, okay, where did everybody come from? You can see that Japheth is kind of around the top there. Shem, that's, that's the Israelite people where they're going to, that's where they kind of hang out. And then Ham, you can see they kind of up and through Canaan and then Africa. So that, that just gives you a broad overview. But if I mean some some guys talked for like an hour just on chapter 10. And and there's so many things where you can trace, and where did where do the people in China come from? Okay, well, let's trace it. And you can trace it right back to the table of nations through the, the words that are being used here. And and so it's it's super fascinating. But I want us just to kind of, again, broad perspective. Japheth will be blessed through Shem. The Gentiles will be blessed through the line of Shem, if you remember last week. And then Canaan will be cursed. Canaan will serve Shem. Again, remember the original audience who's receiving this is the Israelites who are about to go into the land of Canaan. Right there, the green. And and that is the promised land. That is where they're going to go into. And they are to defeat their enemies. Now, kind of fascinating, one last piece before we move on to chapter 11 here. But one last thing about chapter 10. There's this man by the name of Eber... And he has two sons, Joktan and Peleg. We get the line of Joktan here, and then we have the tower of Babel, 11, 1 through 9, and then we get the line of Peleg. He, he separates it that way because it is through the line of Peleg that we get to Abram. And getting to the hope of like... Get anybody ready for some hope after going through these last like nine chapters of Genesis? You know, it's like okay, yeah, we're terrible, we get it. You know, <laughs> it's like yeah, but but it's like, but there's hope, and so he divides that up, in, uh, and so we see the line of Joktan here, through the line of Shem, and then later next week we'll see the other line. So. Humanity is advancing, right? We, we see that cities are being formed, nations are being formed, but we haven't really talked about the morality. You haven't talked about, what, are they following God this time? Like, did they learn their lesson from what happened with the flood before? Well, the answer is no. The ambition of man, second point, reveals human arrogance. It reveals human arrogance. Before we look at chapter 10, just look back at chapter 10, or sorry, chapter 11. Let's look back at chapter 10, just for a moment, to the man Nimrod. Anybody name their kid Nimrod? Okay. It just doesn't sound right, period, right? But who is this guy? Who is he? Is anybody kind of like fascinated by like seems like Moses thought he was an important guy. He kind of took some time to talk about him. Pele gets a little bit of a shout out about when the earth divided, and that's about it. The rest is just a bunch of names. But this guy, he's a grandson of Ham. His name means, we shall rebel. That's a great name for a kid. And that's exactly what he did. It was said of him that he was a mighty man. When's the last time we've seen anybody being talked about as a mighty man? Chapter 6, verse 4. Back in the days of the mighty men, what were they known for? Their violence. They were, they were like warriors. They were like the dictators of today who would go out and, and, and conquer. This is this guy. He's a, he's, not a conqueror, he's, he's a conqueror, not a slave. In other words, in the line of Canaan, not yet, not yet a slave. That's still in the future. This guy, he's a conqueror. And, and it says in verse 9, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. It was a proverb by the time it got to the days of Israel in the wilderness here. They knew this proverb, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter. Well, what, what is that? Was it, he's like, you know, he's like shooting deer and moose and elk. Is that, is that what we're talking about here? No, the hunting he was doing was against humanity. He's, he's a mighty hunter. He's a He's a killer. In other words, he, he's a warrior, is another way we could put it. And just as we've seen before the flood, now we see again someone not just content with, like, hey, are you, guys, are you guys taking this piece of land over here? Nobody? Okay, I'll take it. There's lots of it. We got the whole world here. No, he, he's, he's a warrior. He'll take what he wants. And what's so fascinating about this guy is, is that he. he he develops all these cities which become the enemies of Israel, right? Did you see the cities he's mentioning there? Babel, which becomes Babylon, Assyria, Nineveh, right? Like these places that, that um, were not good for Israel. He's pointing out, this is, this is where all your enemies came from. Ross says this about Nimrod. Nimrod became a symbol of the powerful empires that would eventually destroy Israel and punish Judah. And Nimrod is a classic example of all those who walk in arrogance against God and his ways. They are intent on seeing their kingdom come, their will being done. They don't care who they hurt in the process. And, and the generations that follow after him, it would seem that that, that was, just became the mindset. Now, I say the generations after him. He's the grandson of Ham. It says that in the days of Peleg, the earth divided. Now, I used to think, and I think I even told some of the leadership guys this, I, I used to think that's when like, the earth like, kind of moved apart. You know, It was like one landmass, and then it kind of went like that. And there are some commentators that agree with me, but now studying this, I'm like, I don't think that actually is correct. I think it's, it's that when the earth divided, like when, when God took all the peoples that were of one language and he made them many languages. And that wasn't until the fifth generation. So the best I can figure is that is during the days of Peleg that this happens, this Tower of Babel incident. And so let's pick that up in chapter 11 now. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words, right? They, why? Because they all came from the same family. Shem, Ham, and Japheth, they were brothers. They could talk the same language. And, and people don't just typically make up new languages just to confuse one another, right? Unless it's like Pig Latin or something, right? And you're, you're trying to tell secrets. Um, but they had one language. That was, that was the default of course, we're going to get to the point where they don't have the same language. This is the account of that. Verse 2. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Now, what's wrong about this is that they are settling there. God has told them to go and fill the earth. But, but instead, they're, they're, they are settling in this place. Now... I don't know how much to make of it, but I'll mention it. In Genesis, earlier in Genesis, and I do think there might be something to it because of this repeated pattern. But when Cain, um, Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, they are put to the, what direction from the garden? East. And then when Cain is cursed, where does he go? To the east. We see the east here I mentioned again. There, there's some people thinking, okay, that's out, they're outside the blessing of God here. I think there could be something to that. But they're going to gonna settle here. They're in the plains. You know, think, think Saskatchewan, okay? Just flat, all right? And, and, and they're settling there in this land of Shinar. And now we see why they're settling there. Verse 3. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And this was more for for the people of Israel. It's like, this is how they built then. They didn't have stones in this area. Instead, they get brick. And by by this, they're they're making these, they're going to be able to make this tower. Verse 4. Then they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth." Uh, Three times they're saying, let us, let us, together, united. Look what we can do together. They're going to make these bricks, and now we're going to build a city and a tower that will reach the heavens. Uh, Hugh says this, the intent behind building a tower with its top in the heavens was to join or displace God. We can just get up there, and then we can take over The hope was to reach that meeting point of heaven and earth where they believed the gods hung out, right? we got to go up to them, and then they can come down to us. We'll build up this tower. That's that's their whole thinking here. Hughes again says this. Its builders supposed that God was localized in direct contradiction to the explicit teaching of Genesis. The post-Diluvians had created a god in their own image, also, the unadorned belief that man, by his superior effort, could reach God betrays the fatal delusion of all man-made religion. Anybody think that they can make their way to God today? I mean, billions of people believe that. We, 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 we don't need God to come down to us. We're going to go to him. We can, we can do that. We can make gods of our own making. That's what they do over and over again. Again, we see the same sinful heart of Adam and Eve in the garden. You'll be like God. It's the same idea here. This is, look what we can, if we all come together, look what we can accomplish on our own. We don't need Yahweh. We don't need him. Walkie says here, they're attempting to find significance and immortality in their own achievements. They believe it'll be better for them if they walk in rebellion against God and his commands. It will be bad for them if they're scattered all over the earth. That will be bad. We, We can't do what God's asking us to do. Do you know how bad that will be for us? They know better than God as to what is best. They do all these things, ironically, so they will not be scattered around the earth. What do you think? Is it going to work? I already read that part, didn't I? It doesn't. It doesn't. Man rebelling against God never works, but they think it will. The lies they believed are really the same still today. There's so many believe that a united people against God is better than a separated people with God. You think about peer pressure in your own life. How many of you want to be on the outside looking in, right? How many people want to be the remnant? Not too many people want to be that. You want to be with the majority. Like, we want, able to all get along. Can we just, can we, what do we need to do to get along? What do I need to do to compromise? So tempting to compromise. Can you even say, you know, I just don't want to, I want to be loving. I don't want to have conflict in my life. Well, as a believer, you will have conflict. You will be a remnant. You will be outside looking in. Besides all of this, we all long to have significance. There's in all of us this desire to look look at me. Like, I'm pretty good, right? Right? Like, I'm not perfect, but like, look at me. Look at my achievements. Right? I mean, it starts at the youngest of ages. You know, the kid draws a picture, right? Look what I did. And what do they want? They just say, like, that's garbage. You know, like, I wouldn't even, I, what is that? You wouldn't say, right? you know, like, oh, that's really nice, right? There's this, this longing, this desire to make much of ourselves in this world. And if we don't have Christ, that's exactly what we will do. And if we are not careful, even those of us who are in Christ can try to make much of ourselves. Easily attempted to get glory for ourselves rather than seeking God's glory. Hughes says this, Indeed, the tower builders were going to make a name for themselves, but not the one they hoped for. Their name would become a joke. The only name that counts is that which God gives, as when he said to Abraham, I will make your name great. That's the fame that lasts from God. We we want God to be the one saying the things about us. We want him to say, well done, right? That's the only one that matters. That's the only one that will matter for all of eternity. If people care about who you are today, who cares? You're here today and gone tomorrow. But if he cares, if he is the one who is saying, well done, then that's for all of eternity. We need to remember that as, 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 we, as we seek to have people saying good things about us. We need to remember the brevity of this world, the pride of this world, this fame, it's short-lived. It says in Matthew 16, 26, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? It's this way for individuals, it's this way for nations. Nations have come and gone based on what they do with the Lord, and this is where we turn to now. The ambition of man, thirdly, requires a heavenly assessment. What does the Lord think of their city? What does the Lord think of their tower? Well, the Lord sees all that's taking place. I I forgot to mention, I believe, when it says, before the Lord with Nimrod, in other words, he's saying, I see it. The Lord sees it the Lord sees this city and what their purposes are and in his timing his perfect timing timing he acts sometimes we wonder why doesn't God do things the way that we think he should do them well because his timing is perfect and our timing is not and so he waits until the city and the tower are built and then he says this in verse 5 and the Lord came down To see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Now, I like verses like this because it's super sarcastic. That's what's going on here. Does God need to come down to see this city? Now, or this tower? Like what he's doing here, the tower is up to where? It's up to the heavens? He has to come down. He has to come down to see their teeny tower that they have built. That's what's going on here. This language is to remind us of the greatness of God. This major feat of man, it's a joke to God. Really? That's the best you got? i got to come down and see it. It's so small, I have to have a closer look at it. This tower that says, What the children of man have built. This phrase is emphasizing the human condition of man. They are but dust. The emphasis is on their mortality. You guys who are trying, you're like, Oh, wow, look at what you've done. Like, that's the, that's the heart of what it's saying here. He's coming down, he's like, Really? This is it, right? Matthew says this. I like the way he says it. The necessary descent of God and the humanness of the enterprise that the men were building shows the escapade for what it was, a tiny tower conceived by a puny plan and attempted by a pint-sized people. Mankind loves to brag about their achievements, to make much of themselves. We are the children writing the picture and saying, see, look what I did. But compared to the greatness of our God, are we kidding? Like, who do we think we are? I love books like Job, who at the end of it, God's just like, sure, I'll answer you. First, answer me this. And he talks about all the greatness that he's done. And Job's like, oh, yeah, what am I saying? Who am I to think that I could question you? Psalm 2 is fantastic reminder. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And what's the Lord do? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Is that just in the Old Testament? I mean, the nations today are raging, they're waging war against all things God and God, and they think that they can somehow get rid of God. That is never going to be the case. His will will be done. He's not threatened by the world and they're they're scheming against him. His plans will always come about. God is the one who will be victorious, and it's not even close. The Lord now gives his assessment of the situation, verse 6, and the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. What we need to understand is what I've already said. God is not threatened by what is happening. Instead, God can see that humanity is back on the same pathway as they were before the flood. Together, they will walk in rebellion against God and will live outside of God's purposes for them. That's the trajectory they are on once again. If, they, if, they, if God does not step in and intervene, they will do the same thing all over again. The whole world will be full of violence, just as it was the first time around. Hugh says this, they will build up a delusion, these people, of self-sufficiency through their false religion, corporate security, and political uniformity. They would throw off God and attempt to rule the universe. And in their delusion, they would never turn to God. Their Babylonian hearts would become impenetrable and irredeemable. That's, what's, that's what the Lord is concerned about here. The fact that once again, there will be an entire humanity apart from him. And we're going to get to the answer next week, but this is kind of the introduction. The last time God flooded the Earth, this time, he has a different plan for what He will do. So instead of destroying all of humanity, he has a different thing that he does here. We see this in verse or sorry, in our fourth point. The ambition of man reveals a heavenly antidote. What we need to understand is it will not go well for humanity if God doesn't step in. We're going to get to that again if you read Revelation. Babylon. Babylon. A world united for good? No, a world united to rebel against God. Ultimately, a world united... To suffer eternally in hell is what that will end up in. No chance for salvation, irredeemable. But that time is still coming. So, fourth point. The ambition of man reveals a heavenly antidote. It's interesting the Lord again uses the phrase, let us. It's like, again, there's this, he's pitting himself against the let us of the world. Like, that's your plan. Here's my plan. Let me, let, let's just see whose will will be done here. Let's see who prevails. The Lord will confuse their language, he says. And in so doing, they will no longer be able to understand one another. It's crazy, right? How many languages there are around the world still? Like Wycliffe, like the, the work's never going to be done, right? Like that's, there's just so many languages out there. This is what took place Back in Genesis eleven seven, 7. And the Lord not only confuses their language, but we see then, verse 8, that, that He actually scatters them then all over the face of the whole earth. Man, in his pride and rebellion, was determined to stay together in one place. They preferred the wisdom of God versus, sorry, the wisdom of man versus the commandments of God. So, part of the Lord's judgment on them was not only to confuse their language, it was also to scatter them all over the face of the earth. God actually fulfilled what He told them to do, which was to cover the face of the earth. You're not going to do it, you actually are going to do it. And He does it. They had been putting their trust in what they could do for their own security. In building the city and the tower they had intended to do away with the need of trusting in the Lord for their security. The ambition of man still does the same thing today. It is no coincidence that our society, as it has flourished, is less and less interested in God. Right? We see that there are less and less interested in God all the time. You know, we 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 don't need him. We we have our we have our own abilities to be secure. We have our own abilities to provide for ourselves. We don't need a God. There's a philosopher by the name of Nietzsche, which you probably all have heard of from the 19th century. He is famously uh, for he was famous for saying this: "God is dead. God remains dead, and we have killed him." That was in the 19th century. I think there's a lot of people, they may not say it that boldly, but they believe that. Nietzsche's claim was that God is a fiction created by human beings. God, thus, God dies when there is no good reason to believe that God exists. He asserted that God was a crutch that people use to ease their suffering, and that humanity would be in a much better place. They do away with the belief in God because on our own, we are stronger and have a greater potential for excellence. Sound familiar? Same, same thing as was going on in the Tower of Babel, right? Look what we can do. We don't need God. And that, that is being told all over our world today. Mankind in their pride wants to do away with God or at least control the gods to do their own bidding. That's what we see in our world today. The idea of submitting to the Lord God is not something they desire to do. It was this pride here that caused God to change all of the languages and to scatter the peoples all over the world. Look now at verse 9. He summarizes it for us. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Babel. It's interesting, in the Akkadian language, Babel means gate of God. Guess what it means in Hebrew? Confusion. This is the city of confusion. Yeah, you got a name for yourself. The name is city of confusion. God will not be mocked. Though mankind may shake their fists at God, he will have his way and no one and nothing can ever stop him. We need to be reminded of that this morning. As the nations rage against the Lord, as, as sometimes you might be feeling like you're all alone in this world, as, as it seems like, you know, what, what, what will happen to Christianity? What will happen to the Lord's church? What, like, as it seems like the world is getting stronger and stronger all the time. Remember, God is over all of this. There is no nation that is so powerful that God can't just go flick and it's done. Or, in his grace, save them, like he did with Nineveh. Nineveh is a great illustration. Nineveh, part one, message of repentance, they all repent. Nineveh, part two, that's called the book of Nahum, they all get killed. But God will have his way. And so let us look to him It's important as we come to a close that we see the actions of the Lord are not just punishment here; they're also preventative. If mankind was left to their own, they would have taken everything right back to pre-flood world. And by God acting in this way, He's preventing them from that happening. Matthew puts it like this: This has its parallel in the Garden of where the couple are driven from the tree of life, which not only meant their punishment. But ironically, also their rescue from perpetual life in a shameful misery. The promise of Genesis 3.15 can still happen. Because of what God does here. If God doesn't turn the trajectory to a different way, then all would be lost. But God is in control. And as we're going to see next week, he's choosing a people. That all the nations of the earth might be blessed. Those seventy nations that he mentions in chapter ten, he still has a plan for them. He still wants to save. Well, I want us just to think about where our hearts at this morning as we as we get ready for communion. Would you rather trust in your own ways this morning, or would you rather trust in the word of the Lord? What is your ambition this morning? Is your desire to make a name for yourself? Is it in trying to find security through your own efforts rather than trusting in the Lord and his word? Do you put your hope in the nations, in the governing authorities of this world to provide protection and prosperity for you? Or are you trusting in the Lord God? Which city are you living for? The city of man or the city of God? The city of man, which is characterized by pride and arrogance and selfishness? Or the heavenly city, which honors God in all things, trusting only him for all wisdom and giving glory all, only to him? May you see the foolishness of living for the city of man. It's the example of the Tower of Babel. God, help us. Let's pray. Lord God, we, we need you, Lord. We need your grace. We need your mercy. God, this morning we're humbled by the fact that you would choose us. Lord, we are the people in Babel who would walk in rebellion against you. We, we would gladly do so. We would gladly make a name for ourselves if left to ourselves. But God, you have chosen us. You have saved us. You have made us a people who are yours. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. God, as we look at the nations around us raging against you, God, may we keep our focus on you and you alone. We have nothing to fear, God. You are the Lord God. God high in heaven, powerful beyond all imagination. And God, we pray that you would just help us to put our trust in you this week. God, as we leave this place, help us not to to shrink back, but Lord, help us to, to move forward with faith, knowing, God, that as we would proclaim your word, Lord, you're building your kingdom on this earth through your church and that one day the fullness of your kingdom will come when you return. But until that time, Lord, would you find us faithful to go to all the nations, Lord, that they might hear of the good news of Jesus Christ. That though they have rebelled against you, like all these that we've read in Genesis, that today they can be saved because of what Christ has done. Lord, help us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.